I love our music. I think I was a rock star in a former life, or at least I wanted to be. Anyway, hi, I'm Andrea Miller, host of Open Relationships Transforming Together. I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Brian Atkins and Jonas Koffler. We are super excited. We got an amazing show for you today. Our guest is the one and only Guy Winch. We've got a lot to say about Guy and a lot to discuss with him. So stay tuned for that. But just, you know, the show is still a little bit new and we're early on in our uh, kind of life here as a podcast. And so just a quick reminder, our goal of the show, Open Relationships, I know some people are like, what is that about? It's a little bit of a, you know, fun metaphor uh encouraging people to open up emotionally and if you want to open up in other ways we are not going to judge you um we might be curious we want to hear about that um but our goal here on the show is genuinely to help people open up emotionally and just be a little more courageous maybe take some good risks in your relationships we know that the world is incredibly divisive it's hard to talk to anybody anymore um, there's so much hurt and heartache out there. And so our goal is to create the show that you love, that you want to listen to. And ultimately, we hope what you take away is how to be a little bit more open in your relationships. All right. Okay. Um, uh, Brian, you were just sharing the sweet, I mean, you know, we relationships. That's what we care about so much here. Um, talk, talk to us and share that little fun anecdote. It is football season. Right. Yes. For all the football fans out there. I know I am. Go Chiefs, Jonas. Go Chiefs. Go Eagles. Go Chiefs. Eagles. Fly, bird, right. fly. <laughs> Brian? Uh, just recently um, was reconnecting with some of my old friends because so I originally was from Florida and then moved to New York. And then a lot of my other friends kind of moved out to all of our various places in the U.S. And how we've kept in contact for the last however many years has been through fantasy football and oh. it's kind of funny because like my fiance hates football doesn't care about it at all <laughs> until she found out she was like wait this is how like men stay in contact with each other and like stay friends like that's so cute <laughs> it was such a good like eye-opener i guess because um you know i'd been however many months since last football season ended or whatever and then uh, recently we were doing our drafts, getting our teams ready for the year and everything and having everyone together and kind of checking in on each other and seeing everyone's faces right. and stuff. It was kind of like, oh, my God, I missed everybody. And and it's it's like a thing where we don't um, I don't know, I guess like we don't feel the need to check in on our like guy friends as much, you know, where right. you're like like one of the guys, you know, is going to be the best man at my wedding. And it's like, I haven't texted him in like six months. You know what I mean? It's just like, we just, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it's my boy. He's going to be there. You know, and it's like, oh, I'll see him in football season or whatever. But uh, then now seeing each other and everything, I'm like, I need to text Will. I miss him. Like, I didn't realize how much I missed him until I was there. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. I mean, yeah. I mean, fantasy football for the win, for uh, being a, a unifying force. Who knew? Super a force, cool. A force for good. I mean, the whole the whole notion of the like how we connect. I think you know the joy of hearing or reaching out or hearing from someone you haven't heard from a long time that has has at times been a close friend. I mean, I had this this experience earlier this week um, where it's like weird. I joined. I was on. I I reinstalled Telegram. Oh hey. All of these names were populating. Blah blah blah. Joins Telegram. Blah 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 blah. And you see all of the your friends and hundreds and hundreds of people and then you get a message from someone whom you absolutely love and admire um a fellow writer and uh 
he said, you know, it was Jonas exclamation. How are you, man? And it's like, wow, I haven't talked to him. Likewise, Brian, it's probably been a year. And uh, this is a guy whom I really, really like. And, and uh, it was just so nice and delightful, heartwarming to reconnect. And it's just like, wait a minute, we're reconnecting via this app. As yeah, opposed I mean, to technology for good, right? I mean, there's well, so exactly, much exactly of technology, and and it obviously it can be a, a weapon of mass distraction, as we've talked about a lot on this show. <laughs> I'm going to just share one little shout out to the um, public school teachers out there. Um, my son just started, my older son just started eighth grade, and we had back to school night earlier in this week, and it makes me a little verklempt. It's like eighth grade. And so back to school night, you just you go to every class and each of the teachers has six minutes to tell you all about themselves and what to expect. And I left his wonderful junior high. Uh, Every single teacher made me feel so joyful and so grateful for my son going to that school. It's like. I just, wow, I'm just, I'm so grateful. And I feel like um, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky and blessed. And gosh, there's just not enough praise for the teachers out there. And when I think about what's happening IRL in the real world and building great relationships, I'm going to name check uh, Coach and the, the uh, chair of the math department, Mark Miller. His whole thing is, you know, we start the semester building trust, building relationships, because that's really, if I can do that with a kid and he realizes that as a, you know, as a coach, that's how I'm really going to break through with, with him or her in math and academically. And so I was just sitting there in these classrooms, getting schooled by these amazing people that are so passionate about teaching. So I just wanted to start by giving, you know, a huge shout out to all the teachers out there. Absolutely. All right, we've got a great show, so uh, let's uh, let's get the show on the road. Yeah, um, so we're about to uh, connect with Guy Winch. We have him in the lobby here. Um, do you want to uh, tee him up, or should we just bring him in and say hi? Let's bring him on in. All righty, and so here is Guy Winch. Okay, we are joined by an amazing guest today, the one and only Guy Winch. Guy is a licensed psychologist who works with individuals, couples, and families. As an advocate for psychological health, he has spent much over two decades adapting the findings of scientific studies into tools that people who follow his work can use to enhance and maintain their mental health. As an identical twin with a keen eye for any signs of favoritism, I have a feeling this is going to come up today, he believes we need to practice emotional hygiene with the same diligence with which we practice personal and dental hygiene. I hope the dental hygiene doesn't come up today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there's more. There is more. His books, Emotional First Aid, Healing, Rejection, Guilt, Failure, and Other Everyday Hurts, The Squeaky Wheel, Complaining the Right Way to Get Results, and Improve Your Relationships and Enhance Self-Esteem, and How to Fix a Broken Heart have been translated into, listen to this, 33 languages. That's amazing. Guy is a wildly popular three-time TED speaker. His TED Talks have been viewed over 35 million times. Yes, 35 million Guy is a prolific online author. His work appears on places such as Psychology Today uh, and the TED blog. Guy 
co-hosts a podcast called Dear Therapists, along with the one and only Lori Gottlieb, which is executive produced by Katie Couric. Guy received his PhD in clinical psychology from NYU and, dun, 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 Guy dabbles in stand-up comedy. Welcome, Guy. Hello. Wow, I'm exhausted from that intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> I am, I mean, super impressed, but I have to start by saying um, you've made common painful conditions like loneliness, rejection, failure, and heartbreak the focus of your work. I just, I was thinking about this. You must have been a real blast in your stand-up comedy routine. Well, actually, uh, in order to be a real blast in my stand-up comedy, and you know, you said dabbles, the D would be more appropriate, dabbled. Um, but I actually <laughs> never spoke about being a psychologist on stage. I wanted a complete differentiation. So no one knew that I actually had a career and I was seeing patients and then closing the office and running to tell jokes to uh, drunk strangers in New York, because that's fun. And so, but I never spoke about being a psychologist on stage. I kept those very separate. Well, I uh, I have to say, I when I connected the dots that you did stand up, I I understood perfectly why there's so much uh, humor and and levity and comedy in your amazing TED talks. So I, I thought, okay, now I'm now I'm getting it. Um, okay, let's so in in all seriousness, let's start with loneliness. Um, the U.S. Surgeon General proclaimed there to be a loneliness epidemic earlier this year in the United States. He's offered a ton of data and evidence about the damaging, even deadly impact that loneliness has in people's lives and how damaging it's been for our society. So I'm I'm curious, uh, I mean, crucially, what do people need to know about loneliness and why, but how did you start, how were you so early to this, what is now a crisis? How, where where were you seeing the signs? And then, you know, what, what can people do? And I mean, I often think when people think about loneliness, it's like, oh, it's that, you know, 90-year-old man that lives alone, right? But it's not just the 90-year-old man that lives alone, right? It's way more pervasive. So so just, I'm going to be quiet. I want to hear all, the, all that you have to say on this topic. These days, it's much less likely to be the 90-year-old man who lives alone and much more likely to be the 19-year-old man who lives with roommates. But I'll get to that in a minute. I, my first exposure to this was in the mirror. It was me. It was when I moved to the U.S. to go to graduate school and separated from my identical twin for really essentially the first time. We're going to be living different continents. Um, I was preparing, like most immigrants, I prepared for the financial hardships, all of this, you know, the different things I'd have to do, the school hardships, loneliness for some reason didn't occur to me and it doesn't occur to many and what happened was when I was beginning to feel it it didn't occur to me either because I was in graduate school and working so I was surrounded by people all day that wasn't the image of loneliness that I had in my head I had the 90 year old living alone not the sure. young person in their 20s surrounded by people all day and running and busy and all of that but I felt it very very uh, profoundly and and it's a story I tell in my first TED talk but briefly what what happened was that it was our first birthday and it was going to be the first birthday we were apart in our lives. Mm -hmm. And this was before cell phones. There were rotary phones, those things that were connected A, uh, with a wire to the wall and B, with a wire headset to, you know, the actual phone mechanism. Um, and uh, I just waited for him to call me all day so we could talk because we, days calls were very expensive. We had very little money. So we kind of saved to be able to talk a little bit more 
on our birthday and the phone didn't ring and he didn't call and my immediate thought was wow i've been away for like seven months and he's kind of uh, not forgotten about me but reprioritized in some kind of right. way he's probably out celebrating with his friends and and you know you'll call me tomorrow but it it was so painful and it was such a lonely lonely night um and then when i woke up in the morning i realized that in my pacing around and impatiently waiting for him to call i had kicked the receiver off the phone which that meant that there was a busy signal and no one could get through because it wasn't just him who didn't call no one called on my birthday it was a horrible horrible feeling all my friends and family were in another country and none of them bothered to call um and when i put the phone back on the hook it rang immediately and my brother was on the phone and incredibly upset with me because he had been trying to reach me all day and he didn't know what happened and when i tried to explain it he said to me like okay but so i didn't call why didn't you just call me i was like uh, oh it just it didn't occur because when you're lonely you feel so alone so raw so rejected so unseen that the idea of reaching out and risking more rejection or a rebuff seems more than you can stand. So you don't. But that's the moment where I realized, oh, not only I'm really lonely, but this is messing with my head. Uh-huh. And I started getting curious about what is lonely doing to us that, you know, and again, this is my identical twin and we're one of those twins that are uh, my closest friend in the world always has been there's never been a crack in the relationship it it should be the last thing in my mind but that's what loneliness does it convinces us that the people who we have who are dear to us who care about us don't care as much and then it makes us reluctant to reach out and that reinforces the loneliness and it's a very difficult spiral i mean it it makes you a little irrational right i mean that was irrational It's a distortion. Yeah, it's distortion. a perceptual That's, distortion. Yeah. Yes, it's irrational, but it's really on the perceptual level. When you scan your relationships, they don't seem close and worthwhile as they actually are. It's literally a distortion. How old were you when this occurred? My early 20s. Wow. And um, I, I feel like there's a lot to say about it, but the, the thing that feels so acute to me is why you didn't call him. Right. And you you've explained that. But I just want for people listening and watching. It's like we're always waiting for the other person to go first. And then we wonder why we feel alone and and hurt and angry. And then the the story, it, it sounds like what you're talking about. And I've certainly been in that mode before where then we've got that story in our head that just uh, exacerbates the situation. Right. Then we think bad thoughts about ourselves. We think how uncaring that other person is. Oh, maybe we can get um, get back at them, <laughs> right? I'll show them. I'm just going to give them the silent treatment for making me feel so bad. Right. But right? the thing is, this is like most psychological wounds. You start with an original wound, and then there are all these ripple effects of how we then tend to make things worse. And loneliness is a great example, because what happens then when you're feeling, um, you know, dejected, disconnected, uh, resentful, is what happens. People who will only feel a lot of resentment and hostility because, you know, the world is is ignoring them. Of course, they're so pained that that's what they feel. But then when they do try to reach out, you get either over hostile or overly apologetic or overly like, you know, I'm not worthy, like, 
I know you don't have time for me, but maybe if you did this passive aggressive, you know, mm-hmm. low self confidence, and it sounds so unappealing to the other person who doesn't know this story that's going on in your head. All they know is, I've been busy, we haven't spoken for a while. Of course we're close, what's the big deal? And suddenly you get from a really close friend, I guess you really don't have time for me. Why, did you try and reach out? Did I not respond to something? And then you check your text and you're like, no, they didn't, what's this about? So when you're lonely, you then reach out in ways that are, again, not going to get you where you need to be. They're not gonna connect you to the person, they're gonna push that person away. And I always say to people, Like, remember that in electronic communications, which is how most of them happen these days, over text, um, there's no intonation, there's no nuance, there's no tone. And so what you think sounds one way, like, we haven't spoken in a month, you know, and you might mean it as, oh, we haven't spoken in a month. What it can sound like is, we haven't spoken in a month. And so you you need to understand that how you read it, how you wrote it might not be how it's received. And I always recommend this very silly thing. I always say, like, add an emoji, add a smiling face or a heart. People say to me, really 12 years of schooling and that's what you have emojis? And I'm like, (laughs) well, yes, in this case, that is a good thing to do because it just lets the person know. And I meant that out of love, if they're inclined to read it incorrectly. Totally, I love that. Okay, so one takeaway already from the show, emojis, good. (laughs) More emojis. Well, but Um, I know, I know the current generation it depends which ones and you have to use them correctly and some of them are not good. So be wise in your emoji choice, but use the right ones to convey the tone you wish to convey. All right, yes. Okay, let's let's uh, strike that from the minutes and uh, say uh, big takeaway number one from the show, use the right emojis, no poop emojis. <laughs> can we can we actually add, you know, on the loneliness uh, front, you know, if we talk about the, the individual experience, Guy, in your case, it was an acute, intense, birthday loneliness, which is akin to if you've ever spent a holiday, let's say Thanksgiving alone, let's say I spent Thanksgiving alone, which Mm. I did once, it is absolutely heart-wrenching and mind-wrenching. And that is an acute example. We all experience these, uh, hopefully they're transitory, and hopefully you've never missed another birthday call with your brother, right? Uh, Or family members or friends for that matter. But I think the holiday one is is particularly intense, uh, and it's it's kind of an, an analog to that experience. I think the deeper societal wound is more of a chronic loneliness, and I wonder, guy, if you might touch on that sense of disconnection that we're experiencing on such a grand scale. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I think today it is a societal epidemic, and um, and by the way, yes, holidays, family holidays and Thanksgiving especially in the US, to spend alone is brutal and millions have over these past few years of the pandemic spent it alone, certainly in 2020 and, and 21, that's, that's probably true. So it's been brutal for a lot of people. But society now, when you look at the scope of the epidemic, the loneliest cohort are the young adults, are the 18 to 24 year olds or to 32 year olds, depending on how you're slicing it. But this is global and it's actually not US. This is all over the world. The younger people are the ones who are most lonely. It's a chronic situation. Now, it's social media. And it's not, social media is bad in all kinds of ways. But in this case, what it did is it substituted in-person interaction with virtual interactions mm-hmm. in a very profound way. Before social media, you actually had to go somewhere to meet 
someone. You actually had to go out with friends, and so people would. You actually had to, you could catch up with a friend on the phone, but if you literally wanted to see them and see their new baby, you had to go over, that kind of thing. And there's a huge shift from in-person to virtual, especially with Gen Z and, 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 and somewhat with millennials, and, you know, et cetera. And that substitution has cost us a lot of face time. Add in that substitution in our workplace, even more face time. And we have yet to develop full procedures in the workplace and certainly interpersonally of how we make up for that. In fact, by um, connecting, by asking questions, which might be a little bit more obvious, because when you see a friend, one of the first things you do is you hug or you shake hands. The physical contact, we're denied. The tactile contact, we're denied. All of those things come together. And so you have uh, this U-curve of happiness and loneliness kind of falls similarly in that it's the younger generation by age, it's the younger generation who are feeling more lonely because A, they're not having as much in-person time and then it's a comparative thing. You see on social media, everyone looks connected, happy, in groups, with friends and you're sitting by yourself for the Thanksgiving birthday or just a regular Saturday and you feel like, wow, my emotional needs, my connection needs are not being met and it's that gap that creates loneliness. Because just to remind people, loneliness is defined purely subjectively. It doesn't depend on the, the quantity of people around you or on other people's uh, estimation of how connected you are, only in your subjective sense. So if subjectively you don't feel seen and everyone around you on social media seems fully connected, it's gonna feel very painful. Oi, I mean, it just, it's like, God, who hasn't felt like that before? Right. And how, to your point, how social media has so massively intensified that. In fact, we're going to come back to comparison culture. You said, you know, it's comparative. Uh, everybody else seems um, happy and connected. But I, I want to ask, just going back and, and really underscoring the point, I feel like there's that. And you referenced this even when you were in graduate school, when you moved away from your brother and your family, um, that you were surrounded by people and yet you were really lonely, right? And I just, I, I, I want to dig into that a little bit more and, and help people understand um, it for people listening and watching, you know, for them to go, oh, that's what's going on. And yet I'm disconnected. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? And I, I, I hear you and I get it as far as people substituting and it's a cheap substitute. Let's, uh, you know, call a spade a spade. Social media is a cheap substitute for in-person, but is it just for these 18, you said the cohort that's the loneliness, they're loneliest, excuse me, 18 to 22? Did you, did I get that right? Or 18 it's to young 24? It depends on the surveys, but they're the young, it's the 18, it's the, it's the early adult, emerging adult, young adult, um, right. you know, that, that are most, and teens, in other words, it's really the Gen Z and that, that are really most afflicted, I think, by age. It, and what's your hypothesis there? Because when I think about, a, a, you know, at that age, the majority of people are, are in college, right? Or maybe they're living at home. But they're, at that point, you would think most people are surrounded by other people. So what's happening there? Are they just literally going back to their dorms? Are there, like, is it uh, uh together alone together kind of thing or what's happening there it's it's first of all it is somewhat alone together but it's like this when we talk about connection and disconnection to be clear we're talking about emotional connection and emotional disconnection when you're trying 
or wanting to feel connected. When I say, do you feel seen? Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel understood? Do you feel valued? Um, those are emotional experiences, not intellectual experiences. You, you and or they could be intellectual, but they're not going to be as as powerful. You need emotional connection. And when you might be sitting side by side with a roommate in college and studying, where's the emotional connection? People have lost touch with how to connect emotionally, with what are the things they need to do or say, or how do I actually, if I have 15 minutes with a friend, how do I make that um, really have good return on investment in terms of my connection to them? If we're just going to talk about chit-chat or small talk, nothing's going to happen. If you have to be emotionally open, disclose your talk about your feelings, talk about your hopes, talk about your dreams, talk about what's difficult. You have to show emotional vulnerability and the other person as well to feel connected. Or you have to go through a certain experience. Men are less verbal in terms of talking about their emotions on average. And so men often connect with one another shoulder to shoulder rather than face to face. And you can connect that way. You can go to a game and cheer together. But all you need to do at the end of that game is saying, uh, man, it's great to see a game with you. Because <laughs> that quick exchange, and they go, yeah, you too, it's the best, had miles of subtext underneath it. And for those two men, felt like, yes, this was not that sentence. This was the game that connected us. We shared all of that. Without that sentence, you might feel it, but you walk away not knowing if the other person did and therefore feeling less connected. So we've also lost the know-how of how to connect in a more deeper, meaningful way. And that's also part of what's going on today. I just want to come full circle because what you said is such an aha for me. What you described in the, you know, that very painful experience on your birthday that <laughs> you accidentally knocked the phone off the hook and, you know, then those, uh, uh, started, those sad feelings started to brew. And your brother asked you the right question. Well, why don't you call me? And I just really want to emphasize the point you were just making. Someone has to go first, right? So you go to this game or you have this wonderful, what, what feels like a, just a really cool, memorable experience, but he or she doesn't sort of give uh, maybe voice to that. And so, right? I mean, shouldn't the, the message be, be the one that goes first to make that connection? Yes, because here's what happens to a lot of people in that moment. They know that if they call a the friend and the friend just acts like nothing's wrong because the friend doesn't think anything's wrong, that will feel okay, but it will feel much more rewarding to them and much more meaningful to them if the friend calls because that'll really show that the friend cares more than if they're just there for my call, right? And so you're waiting to get more bang for your buck. But what I remind people is your friend has no idea what's going on. They don't know this moment is important. They just think everything is fine with you and you're busy and they're busy and so they don't realize that. So go for the thing that might be slightly less nourishing but plenty nourishing in and of itself rather than do without or risk doing without because your friend doesn't know that, that you're feeling bad and that you really need them to call. Give them a hint. Amen. It just it feels like just kind of the ultimate power move in terms of, of self-care and, and maturity and wisdom Quit waiting for the other person to go first. I mean, I feel like it's so common, you know, when I think about how challenging marriage can be, 
he should know, right? Do you, do you hear and see a lot of that? He should know. He should know that or or she should know that they should read my body language better. They should, right? I mean, they we're, we're waiting for the other person to go first way too often, aren't we? Yeah, there's a fallacy we have that the more we know someone, the more we and they can read our minds and we can read theirs. And actually, the research shows that uh, the longer a couple are together, the more mistakes in perspective taking they often make just oh. because they don't actually take the time to ask themselves, wait, what does she think about this now? What does he think about this now? Because, well, she told me in 1998, why do we need to ask now? It's already been 25 years. Surely she hasn't updated what she thinks, you know, and, you know, and, and so couples don't ask one another because they know one another. Family, family members don't ask, oh, how do you feel about this? Because, well, I, I know how you feel. You told me a while ago. And, and, it's, and it's very true that, you know, I always say a couple, it's very rare for somebody to walk into their spouse and go like, I've updated my thoughts and feelings. Here's a PDF. Talk to you later. They're not going to do that. So you're not going to know unless right. you ask. You cannot make those assumptions. But I think you just nailed it again. You're not going to know unless you ask. So I, I feel like this idea of really... Uh, taking the burden upon yourself to not burden, but but taking the initiative to be curious, right? Particularly in a longer relationship, and you know, as my parents age, I'm just like, oh my gosh, let me just ask you guys. And I tease my dad. I'm like, okay, more annoying questions from me, you know. And he chuckles. But you, at this stage, I feel like as our parents age, you go, oh, I don't have that much more time to be curious about them, right? Whereas in a marriage, often you feel like, oh, I've got all the time in the world or other relationships where there isn't that scarcity of time that is causing you to behave differently. So I'm saying to myself, oh, Andrea, just be be more curious in my relationships. Is that do you think that's good advice for people? I think curiosity is very important. But I do. And what I'm saying is that we have a bias here. We have a misperception okay. that we do know what the other person thinks because we know them. And we will allow that our opinions, feelings, and thoughts might change over the years, usually life experience, context, situations, maturity, what have you. But we don't do the same for the other people. We tend to see them frozen in time. And, and that's a bias we have to get over. Yeah. What one point I would add, Guy, and this is certainly resonating in terms of you know being proactive and being curious, as Andrea put it, and... The bigger point I think about friendships or family relationships in general is that it is a contact sport, meaning in your case, picking up the phone, right? Or, you know, in Andrew and our, in our case, we speak often. So whether it's by text with emoji or checking in on one another, and we do that, you know, company wide. But I think the point is you don't know, you're projecting how someone else might be feeling, and they're probably doing the same with you. And I've certainly experienced this, and some of my deep, deep friendships for years. We might not talk for months on end. And in having this breakthrough, this consciousness around friendship, it's on me. The burden is on me to be a better, more proactive friend, family member, participant in a relationship rather than thinking about it. Amen, Jonas. I mean, I, I feel like that really when I when I think about, yes, uh, relationships as a contact sport, and, and recognizing this loneliness epidemic for, for people who are, again, tuned in and take the this kind of thing seriously, as we all should, I just feel like, okay, let me be the one that's going first and being curious. And I love this. We, I mean, it reminds me of when you haven't seen a family member's child or a friend's child 
for many years and you go, wait, you were so little before what happened? Right. I, I think that whole frozen in time thing that you described, Guy, it's like we we are it happened so unconsciously. Right. So I, I think that's also a great takeaway for us to try to be a little more aware of, of how people change. Yes. Look, it, it happens very, very unconsciously. And we make a lot of um, assumptions, you know, about the other person. But I always say to people, you know, when somebody uh, calls you or texts you that you haven't spoken to for a while, and it could be even years, and suddenly you see their name and you go like, oh, them. And, and you have this warm feeling, but you hadn't thought of them lately because your lives are busy, et cetera, et cetera. We all have a lot of those. And, and that's why I speak about loneliness as an emotional wound. Because if you think of it as a wound and that's something that okay. needs healing, yes, it needs the bandage, it needs the ointment, it needs the supervision. It needs proactivity on your part. Wounds, you know, emotional ones, don't usually heal just by themselves that well. You, they need the assist like any other wound. And so if you think about it as a wound, you're more likely to go like, well, I need to heal this now. I need to do something because I'm wounded. And, and that helps motivate people to at least frame things as take, you know, control, be on top of this for yourself. Okay, so, and I love that because, again, I feel like <clears throat> it just, it, it helps people understand that this isn't something that um, they just have to accept, right? Or, you know, they, they feel like a victim in it. And at the same time, I do feel like it's, in a way, it's normalized. So what, what, what do you recommend, right? Because it feels like people will say, oh, I reach out nobody reaches back to me or I don't have anybody to reach out to. So I feel like there's potentially some logistical issues, but give us, you know, so, but you're the, you're the uh, expert here. So what should so, people be doing? So first of all, you know, when I talk to people about this, the first thing I do if it is give them the information that you said a little bit at the beginning, this is impacting your long-term health, your longevity, literally, this is shaving years of your life if it's chronic and certainly your happiness and life satisfaction. So A, you have to take this very, very seriously. You have to take this as if you had some kind of injury that's preventing you from walking. And obviously, well, I can't do without walking. I have to start putting myself on a program to rehab. And that's right. what you have to do. You have to put yourself on a program to rehab. This is not a little bit of effort here, a little bit of effort there. It's a lot of effort everywhere. This is Number your freaking one. life, right? This it's is your, your life. life. And, In fact, and... you, you even talked about how it impacts your immune system, yes. right? Yes, it does. It mm -hmm. really suppresses the functioning of your immune system, which is why it has such a long and, and, and difficult impact on both right. health, you know, longevity and, you know, mortality and morbidity and illnesses. Because if your immune system is suppressed, then you're going to get sicker, um, you know, than you would otherwise. And so you have to be aware that this is a full on program. You are getting, you are rehabbing yourself. You are getting yourself out of a very difficult, dangerous situation. And therefore all hands on deck. It's not about maybe yeah. I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. What do everything that you can do with the following understanding it will all seem incredibly scary. It will all seem like a leap of faith. There's something very difficult in saying to someone who feels very, very lonely, you have to reach out and risk rejection, risk not hearing back, risk ghosting, risk whatever to help yourself. And that's the thing you're suffering from most. It's almost, but again, I've been through a lot of physical therapy. 
it hurts where the wound is when you're going through physical therapy. It's not pleasant, but you need it to heal. And those moments of difficulty, you need to be brave. You need to, you know, start putting together the support as much as you can and start advocating for yourself and really start reaching out because you can take care of it quickly if you really do it well. Amen. And well, and I loved you when I think you were doing, I don't know if it was a podcast or uh, something online. And I, I recall you describing that there's this whole Facebook group that you're interacting with. And there was somebody who said something to the effect of, but I don't even know who I can reach out to. Right. And, it was, I, and yes, it, it was an interview about loneliness. Right. I think it was an NPR channel and they used their Facebook page to get questions live that they would then ask me. So I had access to the Facebook page, as did they. And then a lot of people would ask questions. It's Facebook. People are there with their names. And it was all about loneliness. And one person's question was, the doctor doesn't understand that it's very difficult for someone like me to find other people who are feeling like this. And there were tens of thousands of them right there on right. the page, many of whom liked the comment. And yet you didn't see that there were the people. That's the blindness that we have. We're so used to this that we're not seeing it. We're not exploring it. And that's the thing about open your eyes, you know, and, and, and reach out. And it's, we can do that with our strong ties, which are the friends and the family, and with weak ties. The aggregate of weaker ties, the acquaintanceships, the service providers in our communities, the people we just pass and say hey to on the street, if we cultivate those, those add up to a feeling of belonging too. Those also add up to a feeling of community and village and tribe as well. And people neglect of, you know, the person at the post office, the sandwich place, the dry cleaners, the, you know, because you're seeing the same faces all the time. Smile, get to know them, say hi. And when you, you go around and you do things and people are like, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, hi, how are you? That feels more connected. Again, it's an all-out effort. You should do both. But there are many areas in which people can take action. You know, Guy, I was just going to add just one thing that you, you mentioned physical therapy. Yes. And I, I, I just wanted to pry that open a little more deeply because I think the other aspect of this is partly cultural, uh, which is to say that uh, I think certainly men in kind of American culture, you know, it's, it's not typical people will hug each other, right? But let's just step back for a second within family relationships or friendships in general, hugging the physicality of it, that tactile impression has a, or offers a host of uh, benefits, right? From oxytocin to lowering cortisol levels and so forth. And I, I just wanted to maybe touch or have you touch on the power and the importance of it. I and mean, I wonder for listeners and for viewers who are deprived of having a single hug in a day, the detrimental impact of that on their health and then maybe helping them think through, can they be a little more proactive without being too invasive in hugging their people, so to speak, and letting them know they love them and that they're there, but that physicality is really important. I know I experienced that when I travel, especially in Latin America. It's all here, whereas you know in the U.S. we're a little more distant. It's an interesting point, and there's uh, I have to look at the research because I don't know whether the research on hugging that does show all the benefits 
um, also researched how men typically hug today, which is a single shoulder hug, unfortunately. It's not a double shoulder. It's a single shoulder hug, and then there's a hand. In other words, you're experiencing less of the body, you know, the upper body contact. And I don't know if that's, I would assume, that's slightly less effective. But for men, a little goes a long way. In other words, again, if you're doing a hug or even a handshake, and you just look at the guy and say, and say like, hey, dude, it's good to see you. There's a lot of subtext in there. And if they smile at you too, that feels, that's a moment that feels connected that then makes whatever the conversation that goes on after feel more connected because of that moment that preceded it or that might come at the end. It can be a very brief acknowledgement, but an emotional one. Dude, I missed you. Or dude, it's good to see you is not terribly emotionally vulnerable, but it's enough that if they respond with a smile and they respond in a certain way, you feel that connection. So again, you need to mind this from wherever you can and take the risks that you can that seem manageable to you. You don't have to go all out to somebody you never had this kind of conversation with and be like, let me have been crying in my bed all night for two weeks. The other person will be like, whoa, I thought you were watching the game. You know, like it, it, yeah. it might be a little much. So you have to like measure correctly. But but a little can go a long way sometimes. What's been interesting to me, I feel like just uh, in, uh, you talk about um, sort of those weaker ties and service people and so forth. There was somebody uh, here in our home recently doing some work and he had to call a vendor who, because there was something he couldn't do, he had a broken window. And to listen to this man say, hey, you know, and the, the person he called clearly wasn't his son or somebody close, but hey, I really appreciate you. And I feel like um, I've been hearing more from from men, you know, in our circle, talking to each other. Hey, I really appreciate you. And it's like, oh, joy. And, and he, they're not even saying it to me. But to be to be in that, I feel like that energy of of these men. And again, it's just it's such a small gesture. So guide to your point, these small gestures go so much further I think than people realize and I you know and I feel like the data shows that this loneliness epidemic has hit men particularly young men far more than it's hit women right and we and how men are socialized and so forth and gosh we could talk for hours about that but it does strike me for the men listening and for the moms who have who have boys like I do listening to really try to nurture that risk for them to be the ones to initiate the hey, that was amazing with you, or I appreciate you, right? Because as to your point, it's you're being seen. You're the, per you know, you're the person that is sort of affecting this feeling of appreciation and so forth. First of all, two, two quick thoughts here. N number one, the, the term I appreciate you, which is, you know, more and more prevalent now, I think it's great for men because it doesn't sound too mushy. It doesn't sound too much. <clears throat> but it conveys a lot. So I think it's very, very useful. And secondly, I'll say that if you raise boys to say those things in the home, to express that in the home, I remember I was at, uh, you know, a friend and, and their, the, her son was at the time 13, I think. And he had a friend over and they were playing a video game, a competition video game. And I was just half listening because, you know, I was... It, it, and there was a moment where, you know, one of them did something and the other one said, oh, I'm really proud of you. And then the other oh. one, they're like, oh, I'm really proud of you. Now, clearly, that's something they learn within the home, but it was just adorable 
seeing these teenage boys expressing, hey, I'm proud of you. Like that, I mean, again, so, and, and, and later on, they'll be able to say that more easily as adults. We can socialize boys to, to do a little bit more of this. Oh my God, can, uh, Brian, can we give a big clap and, and all the sound effects for Guy and, and for parents? <laughs> it's true, right? My kids are 10 and 13 and I'm like, oh, I think, I, I think there's been a little uh, do- indoctrination in that. And you're so right. It starts at home. Go ahead. Say, uh, have you seen the the trend with a lot of the the Gen Zers and stuff on TikTok where it's um, kiss the homies goodnight? Uh, yeah. And it's 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 like obviously I need like to extreme on this. Yeah, it's obviously like extreme, but it's like the point is to to kind of um, uh, normalize, you know, sharing emotions between men and stuff like right. that, um, which is a very like fun, um, almost like you said, it's like a, a, a U shaped graph where the younger people are also like the most lonely but then they're also trying really hard to connect with each other on a very like real level because i mean they've been born in the algorithm right and um like i know especially as an artist um we used to have to tell each other in the early days of like instagram and everything um hey don't only follow other artists that are better than you like like have have a uh like a 50 50 split of people that are better than you and i hate to say it but like people that are worse than you because you need to like have context for reality in that like if you're only following the best of the best of the best and again we all know that we only put our highlight reels on instagram and everything (laughs) we don't see the behind the scenes um so you're comparing yourself to the best of the best of the best of the best all the time and you're feeling incredibly lonely, like you're not doing anything, like your art sucks, like everything. And that's something that I always struggled with. And, um, but it, it's funny because you can't do that with people, right? Like you can't be like, oh, well, I'm going to follow a bunch of friends that have a worse life than me and a bunch of friends that have a better life than me so I can feel better. Like, like that's not a, a very uh, nice thing to do. Well, I don't ten- know or tenable, to- really. I mean, I guess it could be, yeah. but, but it's not. I mean, that, that feels a little Machiavellian, right? Right. And so it's one of those things where it's like, is there like, what is the healthy balance on social media? Is there one? Um, I mean, like, how do we still try and, and have those kind of connections, um, even if we're forced to be apart from each other? Yeah. I mean, bubbles in social media is a problem for many, many different reasons, obviously, that we stay within, <clears throat> sorry, that we stay within a bubble of people who think like us, have opinions like us, have thoughts like us, dress like us, live like us. And within there, we can have the tiering of those who do that better than us, who have better, more followers, less followers, etc., more glamour, less what have you. Um, but it's still a bubble. Um, and really, it's about have at least one or two things in your feed that are views that are not what you believe, can be the opposite of what you believe. Not to rile you up, but just to know and this is what other people are thinking and why. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you might be bewildered. Why would they possibly think that? Well follow a couple of sources just to get a sense of this is their bubble. So that's why they're thinking what they're thinking. In other words, try and have, you know, some counter to your positions um, just for the sake of information, not to persuade you otherwise, because you might be persuaded, but just to know, to fill out who the other people in the world and in your community probably and in oh your life. Oh my God, that's such good advice, Guy. It is such good advice, right? And I just, when I think about how everything is just becoming, you know, to uh, a boil again politically, right? And how much 
judgment and how that judgment is so imbued with vitriol because we we have a hard time empathizing and opening our hearts and minds to other perspectives. So I want to come back. You said, Brian, uh, you teed it up uh, well for me, as did uh, you, Guy. Uh, Guy, you talked about the comparative nature of of kind of the emotional um, connection or disconnection. And Brian, you nailed it with the language we've been using at your tango comparison culture. And this is something that we all experience in, in a lot of ways in our lives. And we're, we've been digging in recently just how pervasive it is, how, how uh, damaging and dangerous it is. I'm wondering how much you're seeing that in your practice, Guy, and if you're willing to be a little bit, you know, uh, uh, share anything personally with us, how have you found um, comparison culture impacting your own life or your own career or your own relationships? So I'm aware of the temptations of it. Um, sure, I've sure. been aware of that, um, you know, for, for a very long time. So I, I have certain strategies which I employ to uh -huh. counter it. Uh, I just want to say uh -huh. something about how pervasive it is in general. It's not just pervasive. It's slightly... Um, automatic. In other right. words, you enter into an entry-level position at work and you compare yourself to your friends who just left college and are going into entry-level positions at work. And then you start comparing yourself to your peers at work and you realize, well, this guy started, but he's doing better than me, etc. And then you get a promotion and you get more money and then you start comparing yourself to the people at that level. And then you get yeah. another promotion, you make more money, and at any le at every level, you're comparing yourself to the people there or above. You're no longer looking down and saying, oh, this is where I came from, or, you know, there are also people who are making less than me, or if I look at my, you know, my college friends, you know, here are the ones doing better, here are the ones not doing as well financially, say, um, number one. And number two, we're certainly only taking account a very narrow slice each time. If we're looking at mm -hmm. money, it's how much money the people have. If we're looking at followers, it's how many social media follows. The people have. If you're looking at love, it's about how good their relationship seems. Again, from the curated images on social media that we can that we can see, and so we tend to compare upwards, and that is useful in some ways and not useful in others. The useful part is it can provide us with motivation. It can show us a path. It can give us ideas about what we need to be able to get further, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It can be unhelpful if it makes us perennially dissatisfied with where we are. And that's the danger for a lot of people. They're never satisfied with where they are. Where I see that in my practice is they will never celebrate any milestones because, well, that's not where I'm trying to get to. No one said that you're trying to get there, but you just got there on the way to wherever else you're going can be paused and celebrate just for a moment there. And people have a really hard time, you know, with that. And there's a real miss there because you're setting yourself up to be constantly unhappy, feel actually less than, feel resentful, because resentment is about fairness and who has more, feel perennially resentful or envious or jealous or whatever those things are. What I've done in, in my life, again, the thing about being a twin affords you a lot of comparisons. And since we, uh, and my brother is also a psychologist, but again, he's at a different country and he does more organizational psychology. So we weren't competing but, you know, so, but what I've always done is I've always compared myself to where I was. Mm. The, I'm the comparison group. It's a within person You're your design own benchmark. research, mm -hmm. yeah, wise. And you know, it's called within subject design. And I am looking to see where I came. 
I am also looking to see where I'd like to go. And I might inform myself of where colleagues are who are ahead of me to know where I might want to go, where I might be able to go. But I am not looking at them and saying like, oh, that's not fair. I should be there. I tend to look back and use gratitude exercises to mm. look back and be grateful for how far I've come. Right. Which is a much that. healthier way to do it. Yeah, totally. I, I love that. Uh, although I have to ask, I mean, I, I was just at a, at a educational seminar and this concept came up of just how prevalent it is for people. And I think, I don't know the data, so I'm kind of conjecturing here uh, a bit more um, men from women getting to a point in their career and saying, I can't believe I haven't done more in my life, right? And it's a little like you're saying, they don't celebrate the milestones. Do you find that's pretty pervasive, that there's a feeling of, wow, I thought I would be a lot further, right? And in a way, it's like, yes, they're probably looking at other people's um, um, uh, sort of symbols of success and so forth. But I also feel like in that case, they're also probably looking at their own just set of expectations. How common is that? It's quite common. But what I say to people is like when they say, well, you know, here I am at 40. What have I accomplished? And I'm mm -hmm. like, do you, do you mean a statue? Like, I'm not, I'm not sure what you think, you know, like a statue in your honor or is there, you know, like what, what world peace should you have been able to achieve, you know, in the Middle East so far? Or like, like, what is the, you know, like, what's the accomplishment you feel like, oh, I didn't leave my mark. Number one, so let's bring it down a bunch. You, you've been supporting yourself, you know, saving for uh -huh. retirement, you know, supporting your family, da, 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 you know, like that's called life. But it's a useful thing when I hear it because then it pivots to, oh, great. You want to have a discussion about purpose and meaning. You want right. to have a discussion about what this is all about. Because when you say, what have I accomplished? I don't know what you think you want to. And I don't know if you know what you want to. So if you're just talking about money and what have I accomplished? Great. What's the goal? What would have been considered an accomplishment? What would you like? What would you wanted to have done by now that you could look back and go, look what I've accomplished? And usually they go to some kind of fantasy that's so out of the bounds of where they are that you're like, okay, that's called fantasy. Let's let's have this conversation in five years' time, say. And in those five years, what's a realistic thing that you want to be able to look back and say, oh look what I accomplished. I actually did accomplish something important to me in five years. What would that be? Let's state it now rather than just move five years down, look around and go, oops, didn't accomplish whatever the vague concept of that would be that you never really fully developed, planned for, or went after. Yeah, I I appreciate that uh, perspective. It, it reminds me of, um, do you guys remember that movie, Mr. Magnum's Opus with Richard Dreyfuss? He was a he was a kind of a, an older school teacher who had been working. If, I mean, I haven't seen this movie in probably over a decade, but it's this beautiful movie about a man who had, as you're describing, these. Um, it's a fantasy. It's a beautiful fantasy about writing a symphony and becoming famous from it, and he didn't achieve that. And I don't want to give too much away because it's a wholly worth watching movie. Uh, but what he realized, you know, as he was breaking down and feeling like he he didn't do enough or um, he wasn't enough in his life as a as a music teacher, the people that he touched and how profoundly he touched them. And, and it's just something that I think about from time to time. 
it's like we were so tough on ourselves, right? And we're thinking about what's not there rather than being able to take that holistic view of the impact that we have made on lives. I also feel like we're in, especially in America, with our, you know, our, uh, we're in the news business and media business, but when I think about this hyper-focus on the freaking unicorns, right? And geez, you're not successful in, unless you're Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, or like, unless you're a billionaire, well, forget it. Well, you know what? 96% of businesses fail. And so it just, I, I, I guess part of me wants to be a zealous advocate when it comes to people, particularly those who have worked hard and built relationships and haven't had the memorials and statues and Pulitzer Prizes given to them to say, you know what, like, don't buy into the bullshit of your life isn't as valuable because you're not a unicorn, right? Or you haven't had that that statue erected to you. But I, I, I feel like we're in a society that there is so much attention on that that super elite that, that again, comparison culture that can make people who are pretty darn accomplished by comparison still feel like, gosh, I, I, I still haven't done enough, right? I mean, do you feel like that, you know, there's something to be said about this? And, and then obviously social media, I feel like magnifies that as well too. What did you say? Everybody else is having more fun and they're more connected than I am. Right. But, and look, I, yes, I, I agree with that completely. What, what I say to people when they say, because I, I, I can't tell you how common it is for me to hear from people, unfortunately common, like right. I want to be a billionaire with a B um, uh, as an ambition. It's a life ambition well, for some reason. And I will uh -huh. always, and these are people, and some of them might be, might become that. I mean, they have the talent to, but, but my question is like, great. Um, why? What for? Right. What's the big plan of what you're going to do once you're a billionaire? That's going to make that effort worthwhile. And it's amazing how unarticulated it is beyond, well, but I'll have a nicer home and a this and a private jet. And I'm like, great. But if you put the private jet aside and the size of the home aside, okay. what else are you doing all day? You'll get used to the private jet. You'll get used to the big home. And then it's going to be about what exactly. And, and for some yeah. of them, they'll be able to say, Oh, it'll be about what well, I really want to do this. I really want to help people in this way, or I really want to. And I'm like, and why can't you do all of those things before you're a billionaire? Right. Why can't be a smaller scale of that be part of your life now? If that's where you find meaning, why, what are you, why are you waiting to achieve it, to practice it, to fold it into your life when you can be doing that in a smaller scale now? So all of these are just avenues for, for, for questions that help people go beyond the, you know, the, 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 the superficial truly uh, goal mm -hmm. that they're identifying to what's the depth that you're really after? Why are you denying yourself that depth now? How can you get more of it now? And why do you have to wait until some kind of artificial milestone that you created by watching other people rather than by looking at what you can bring in of those elements to your life currently and going forward? Well, totally. I mean, seriously, amen, Guy. And, you know, obviously, I personally and your tango, we're all about relational wellness. And the, the data is so clear that healthy relationships are the key to to happiness. They're the key to emotional wellness. They're the key to physiological wellness. So for anybody out there who say, hey, my goal is to be a billionaire with a B, great. But it does strike me that when I hear that kind of ambition, it makes me think, gosh, I've, I've I feel bad because I feel like those people 
are going to be missing out on what's really going to be giving them that joy and meaning and purpose. I agree. Um, okay. So let's, I've got a, a handful of other questions. Um, one that we talked about when we did our, our prep call, unpopular opinion. I know you got a lot of them, guy. Um, so do you have a, an A or a, a couple of unpopular opinions you want to share with us today? I'll, I'll say one, and I don't know if this is, well, maybe it is unpopular. I don't know. Um, I, I think there's a misunderstanding today about how we um, grow resilience and about oh, how okay. we become um, stronger and more flexible because flexibility is where it's at. Adaptivity is where it's at, always has been in terms of our evolution, and that's true in terms of our psychology. And the way you become more adaptable and the way you become more resilient is by putting yourself into discomfort, putting yourself okay. into unfamiliar situations, dealing with opinions that are not favorable or do not sit well with you, getting yeah. into those discussions, going through uh -huh. hardships, putting yourself, you know, people, you know, say like, put yourself in a cold shower for a few minutes just mm -hmm. to adjust your stress response. And that's a physiological response, but you need to do something similar for your psychological responses as well. And I think that there's a lot of way too much sheltering and preventing emotional discomfort and, and hardship. A lot of parents today are trying to clear the path for their kids rather than help their kids Guilty. clear the path for themselves. It, it's not going to help um, the kids learn to deal with the frustrations that they're going to encounter in real life, with the lack of fairness that they're going to encounter in real life, with all kinds of difficulties that when the kids grow up, you know, in a Disney movie, then all they feel is like life is going to be fair and the good people triumph at the end. And if you try hard, you get rewarded. And all of that is not true. It might be. And it's kind of true sometimes, but it's not necessarily true. And if you're not ready for the real world, you're not ready for the real world. And so I think that there's way too much comfort enabling emotionally that's going on. And that's really not useful to the younger generation and to anyone who believes that, oh, I need to be sheltered from this thing that will upset me. Because the more you shelter, the more sensitive you'll be to that thing. The less you shelter, the more resilient you'll be to that thing. So the way to not get upset is not to avoid. It's like anxiety. Avoiding supersizes it's by confronting or by dealing or by reframing or by coping in whatever ways but not by avoiding i i mean amen and it is it, i mean geez whoo you went you are right in there uh, on a topic i feel like that uh the the that really inflames i mean i could see certainly with parents um it's like you want to protect your kids and give them all that emotional safety and yet you also don't want to um um, limit that, you know, limit their chance for being strong and resilient. But I feel like what you've talked about, you know, the word that comes to mind is snowflakes and trigger warnings. And so I'm just curious when it comes to, gosh, I mean, especially I feel like it's been a, a raging debate on college campuses. Um, should people be allowed to, you know, should um, professors say, hey, we're going to be talking about something that's potentially sensitive and and I mean, almost encourage people to say, I don't think I can handle this. I think I need to uh, get out of the room or, you know, sort of um, 
get out of this uh, conversation. Do you feel like that college campuses should be? Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is a this is a big topic. What do you think? So first of all, yes, I think college campuses should not. First of all, let me just say about trigger warnings. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> trigger warnings are not understood correctly. The uh-huh. point of a trigger uh-huh. warning should be, in my mind, to warn you to gird your loins because <laughs> there's going to be something uncomfortable your coming your way. And Thank so you. prepare yourself to deal and with that's... the discomfort and to think about it. Be, don't be surprised. Be a little bit shielded. Get your defenses up. Come in ready. Mm-hmm. You know, be ready to deal with a topic that's difficult. That's what the trigger warning is for. Not to help you right. avoid, but to help you prepare. It's to right? be accommodating. To be, yes, it's accommodating to help you prepare your defenses right. to come in. When you know you're going into a meeting in which you're going to be questioned hard about something, you go into that meeting with a very different psychological mindset than you do with a meeting you think is just going to be something that doesn't involve you. You go in ready, you prepare some things, you prepare your thoughts, you're ready to hear. That's what trigger warnings are for, to prepare you to deal, right. not to alert you to not, not to, to Not to bail, right? Yes. No, thank you for saying that, because that's that's something that I, I definitely hear, uh, especially because as a content creator and someone who makes things, there's a lot of times where it's like, hey, we're going to be dealing with really important, heavy topics or whatever. And there should be, you know, people should be aware of that before getting into it, like depending on, you know, if this particular thing is something that they it resonates deeply with them. And yeah, to your point, like, Andrea, maybe some people will be like, that's too much for me. But mm-hmm. that being said, I shouldn't have to bombard them with something that is too much for them if they can't handle it. So, like, I completely agree that the the trigger warning is misunderstood as it's it's just trying like most things. It's just trying to be accommodating. And and that's how we as a society become better and more connected is if we help accommodate each other. Like we're all in this together. Well, totally. And I just but I, I really when I think about this whole idea uh, and it feels like. Yes, it's more prevalent with the younger generation, but it it also feels like it's it's um, gone up, you know, I guess the age ladder as far as people saying, I'm not comfortable with that. And that it's just it's like it does feel like we are um, engendering a degree of weakness and intolerance. Right. And- I mean, and you said it early on, like, hey, follow people that you don't agree with. Right. As a way to get stronger and more maybe open-hearted and open-minded and wiser. And for me, I would say grow up a little more emotionally and, and be able to reflect on these things without feeling like you're, you, you are personally getting um, triggered or offended. But it, it does feel like this is becoming more pervasive. Yeah, it's not just intolerance. It's entitlement, to be clear. Oh. It's entitlement. It's you oh. need to change oh. the environment oh. for me, for my sensitivities. I just got uh-huh. um, a response to my newsletter from someone. Uh-huh. Well, I really understood the response and they said, um, the color scheme you have in your newsletter is very bold and it's very difficult for me because I have sensitivity to color, etc., etc. And so I have a really hard time reading it. Can you change the color scheme so it's less triggering, etc.? And my thought is, um, whoever wrote yeah. that, you, you're looking at it on a screen and I'm not the only person who might use color in the information wow. that's on your screen. Surely you can adjust your screen for one person rather than me adjusting the newsletter for many thousands of people. Surely that would be the wiser choice. I mean, talk about it. Yeah, entitlement, like 
boom. I mean, that one there person. There is this entitlement of like, yeah. I may not be disturbed. I can, you change what, what, who's allowed to speak at a university so that I, and again, this is to me the changing the channel thing. Don't go if it's that difficult. You know, if you've gotten the trigger warning, you've gotten the alert, this might be something that's upsetting to you, etc. Don't go. It is a wonderful opportunity, by the way, for you to go and protest someone whose thoughts and opinions you uh -huh. don't agree with and to stand outside with a sign, even not to go in and listen if that's too difficult for you, but to let you and your friend's opinion know that you do not abide by those thoughts. But, but, this is the, but, but not that those thoughts are so upsetting that I can't tolerate hearing them when no one's forcing you to. You know, A, I think you should, because to me, for example, personally, I don't like the idea that somebody can say something that I can't tolerate to hear. Exactly. You, I mean, it, talk it, about a victim not? mentality. I'll be pissed off. I'll be offended. Yeah. I'll be something. But what does this mean? I can't tolerate hearing it. It's like, I don't want to think of yeah. myself as, as that sensitive. That's yeah. where I also think that we're kind of becoming the, the victims of our own connections, if you will, because yeah. like... A lot of times, especially on social media or like we open ourselves up on the Internet to comments from anyone, anywhere about anything, um, the vocal minority can kind of like get in our heads a lot. And yeah. and like, let's be real. Even before social media, people were always annoying. There was always someone <laughs> annoying or True. who always has had a bad take on something or who is just like, Ugh, I don't want to hang out with that person or whatever. Well, guess what? That person can comment on your stuff now. And like and. There is, I think, this idea that like when one person is like, like, like whining or, or like, oh, that's too much or, or they're getting really like, I'm triggered because you're like, there was a famous like a, a couple years back, Demi Lovato was uh, getting like frozen yogurt or something and there was sugar free uh, cookies or something and she got triggered by the sugar free cookies because it reminded her of her own eating habits or whatever. And everyone was like, Diabetics are allowed to have foods too that are sugar-free. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and wow. so there, there's always going to be annoying people that misuse triggering or misuse canceling or misuse whatever it is. Yeah. Those people are always going to exist and they always are going to be able to comment on your thing. I think there is a level of personal responsibility of like being able to go like, okay, that person's annoying and not indicative of my whole audience necessarily. Like, to your point, you're not going to change your whole newsletter because of this thing. If necessarily, like you were using language or phrasing on things um, around, I don't know, like uh, domestic or something like that, where it's like, hey, can we phrase it a little bit differently because those words are hard to hear? You know, maybe you might take it more into consideration. But we, as you know, the the keepers of our own worlds, need to be able to kind of be like, okay that person went too far with it that's not uh, like society at large that's just one annoying person well but i feel like as a mom you know i say this to my kids all the time they're 10 and 13 two boys and it, it's like they're they're often reacting to each other they're reacting to the world around them and so forth and to me the ultimate power move and the ultimate empowerment is to say okay, you know, I, I disagree with that or that's interesting or, or whatever, right? Rather than feeling like that is something that um, that you you must react to. Like it just, it makes me feel right. like, golly, we've been so socialized to take things so personally versus saying, you know what, that reflects somebody else's perspective. I find it fucking offensive. 
but I, but that's it, right? And then just being right. able to go, okay, what's for dinner? Right, but but here's misunderstanding <laughs> too about triggering, right? Uh, that people get wrong about triggers. What is getting triggered are your feelings. Your behavior is still on you. Amen. The fact that your feelings got triggered does not give you license <laughs> to behave in any which way because my feelings got triggered. That is always on us. Our behavior yeah. is always on us. Our emotions can get triggered, true. But then you have to deal and you have to manage yeah. them in a way that doesn't give you free license to act in ways that otherwise would not be acceptable. I love that. Yeah, there's um, there's a famous quote on um, uh, mental health and, uh, you know, uh, neurodivergency or whatever that it's like uh, your your mental health or your mental illness isn't your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah, that, that's a good one. So okay, good. I've got a couple more burning questions. Uh, we talked about this one briefly um, when we met a few weeks ago. Uninvited Buddhas, that's one of my pet uh, uh, sort of concepts. And for anybody who hasn't listened or watched the show before, an uninvited Buddha is somebody who is who has entered your life that can be really annoying um, and, and frustrating. Often somebody you resist, maybe even resent, but ultimately somebody who has something to teach you. And so, Guy, I feel like you had a, an interesting perspective on this idea of uninvited Buddha. Yes, but, because... Uh, you may have changed your mind, no, so no, who's your no, uninvited because my, my thought is you're right. You, the people Pleasure. enter our lives who um, can teach us things in a way that's not necessarily easy for us to learn. Right. Great. The problem is they often stay in our lives. <laughs> and at some point we've learned the lesson and I'm good. Why are you still here? You know, kind of thing. You mentioned last time, I think that, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, your kids can be that sometimes. And They're my Buddhas. For all, parents, oh, yeah. that's, for all parents, that's true, that the kids can be, because you can learn a lot about yourself. But boy, they stick around for a while. And so it's not as if once the learning is done. And, and, and this is also, and I, I say this because this is also my thought in general about when people talk about the value of challenging emotions. The value of challenging emotions is that there's a lot of information within them, that they, we can learn a lot, that our reactions can tell us a lot about our feelings and our needs and our wants and, and, and all kinds of, of things, if we can unpack them wisely and correctly and all of that. And so people say that, you know, if you try to avoid those kinds of feelings, then you can run into the risk of, you know, toxic positivity. But here's the thing. A lot of those situations are repetitive. You don't yeah. have to go and sit with the difficult feelings each time it happens. You've learned already. It doesn't mean that the experience is going to be any easier for you. You know what I mean? If you're very anxious about flying, you can sit and understand where the anxiety is coming from and what that's about, or you get stressed out in airports and why. And you still have to fly. You still have to go to airports. And this idea that once you've figured out the why, it suddenly takes away the emotion or something, that, that Freudian notion of figure out the reason and it goes away. No, it does not. And so you also have to understand that in repeated situations you want to dip into that wisdom once or twice and maybe periodically but you don't need to do that every time it's the same situation you can just you know move it aside use distraction use reframing use other mechanisms to not have to be um, activated or sit with those very challenging feelings over and over and over again once you've already extracted the wisdom from them I, I think that's fair I could see that I guess my experience has been in in certain instances that 
the uninvited Buddha experience for me is when I get it, it, it changes my dynamic with that person and that dynamic, that change in me, um, triggers a change in, in the dynamic with them. Right. And so have you ever found that, that, yes, that but that's somebody... reframing, right? I mean, uh -huh. that's the definition okay. of reframing. What sure. happened there is somebody comes in, they, they activated you a certain way. You did uh -huh. some thinking and realized that there were some things you can learn from that or some, uh, some, okay things that you're getting from that. And therefore those encounters now register differently. You've reframed those encounters as being useful or insightful or interesting right. other than just annoying or irritating or frustrating. That is reframing essentially. Right. You know. But I mean, I guess the point in part is that it's that rather than um, uh, continue to uh, to intersect with that person in a way that they're right. they're just an annoyance. It's like ooh, right? I mean, so to me, that's kind of that. So you nailed it. That to me is where the magic is. And for people listening and watching, it, rather than saying, I guess you know, again, a lot of similar themes here. Rather than this is happening to me, this person is just annoying and and an idiot, right? And instead, saying, okay, wait, what? Wait, let me just. Let me reframe this. What's happening here? Let me look in a little bit, you know, more deeply. Okay. Last burning question for you is a liberating change that you've made. And, and this is something that we're just starting to ask more frequently. And the idea is for, again, for listeners and watchers, oh God, we all have more power than we realize, right? I believe that fundamentally, thoroughly in every fiber of my being. I mean, even on the loneliness front, when you talk about taking risk, that's that's inside. That's power, right? A lot of people choose not to. So when it comes to a liberating change, it can be a big one. It can be a small one. So one change that I've done, you know, in the past few years, this is not very recent, but the past few years, I've really played around a lot with um, time and with uh, specifically, and this is going to sound weird until I explain it, with yesterday guy and tomorrow guy. Um, and I don't mean guy generically. I mean me. Because uh, I'm gone. so uh, local <laughs> with people a here. They go, who who is he talking about me? Um, so, for example, um, just this is a small example, but it's the principle of it. I'm going to bed. I'm tired. It would be great. Tomorrow, guy would be so appreciative if I just did this thing that would made the morning a little bit easier. Today, guys, not so much in the mood. You know, and then tomorrow morning, I wake up and I look at yesterday, guy, and I go, really, yesterday, guy, you couldn't have done me that solid. And so, you know, that, that kind of, so I know it sounds like a lot of, you know, I love it. dialogue I in one so person's cool. head, but I, but I, but I, I don't do it in the, in the complaining part, because I don't think that's terribly useful. I do it in the gratitude part or yeah. the motivation to do the thing tonight before I go to bed is like, you know what, I'm going to make tomorrow guy's day a little bit easier and put a smile on his face when he wakes up, because this will be done kind of, and I literally go through that thinking because Yes, in time, that is me tomorrow, and I will feel that way, and I know it, etc. And then I will the next morning wake up and go, "Yesterday, guy, you're the best." You know, oh, that I love of. it. And I know it's it's silly, so cool. but it's very effective for me because I develop these relationships with my past and future selves that I want to be good, and so wow, I will do favors in that way. And it's it's just a nice accountability way of thinking. So, one thing. I, you know, today guy with a capital G, 
I love that. <laughs> and and tomorrow, Andrea is going to love it. <laughs> uh, no, it really, it's you so cool. It. Like, it's such an interesting, unique way to frame, back to the framing thing, where we can be more disciplined. But who the fuck wants to be disciplined? <clears throat> Excuse my language. Um, or don't. Uh, but instead, like you say, really infusing it with gratitude. And honestly, I feel like, I mean, not to get too heavy here toward the end, I feel like we dehumanize ourselves. We're so freaking hard on ourselves, most of us, right? I think probably all of us, right? And um, so when I think about yesterday guy, today guy, and tomorrow guy, and that self-care and that that a little more discipline and a little more, you know, thinking about um, how you can how you can take care of yourself with that framing, it just feels like the opposite of dehumanization. It right. just feels it's like relational. amazing self-care. It, it's truly relational totally. because it's compassionate, it's mm -hmm. considerate, it's kind. It's all the things we yeah. want to bring into our relationships. Well, that's your relationship with yourself. And I, I am very yeah. strongly believe in, in, in that self-talk and, and the whole inner relationship with yourself is profound and super important and, and, and really, and I am, I, and I'm, proud of my self-talk because I this is part of self-compassion this is part of a lot of those kinds of things that if you can switch your self-talk to a positive compassionate considerate kind of way of being with yourself boy does that do a lot for your emotional that's the game changer that's it all right I it's a good thing I got through all my questions because that is I mean honestly I think this is one of the best ends of uh open relationships we've had so we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here um guy today guy tomorrow guy yesterday guy <laughs> you are amazing i've loved this conversation i've taken so many notes and uh we'll uh we'll debrief here a little bit uh with my with my homies kiss my homies good night oh my god brian that is in my head for a long time <laughs> and uh just just wow guy you are awesome thank you thank you thank you i hope you come back on our show Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much to all of you. All right. So good. So good. Oh, my God. I just love that. I love him. I love Guy. Jonas, thanks for the introduction. I know you guys are close friends going back a long time, but he is he is wonderful. He's a special guy. He's a very unique okay. guy. Mm -hmm. And obviously beloved, uh, uh, certainly in the TED community, but gosh, yeah. he's, he's done a lot of the work, right? And I think he's a really kind of a fountain of knowledge and wisdom and support. And I mean, there's so much to unpack in what he shared from loneliness to, you know, what relationships look like and dynamics, even with oneself is a big piece of this as well. That really resonated. Yeah, me too. And there were a bunch of questions that I had written down that we didn't even get to. I mean, one of the things he talks about is how, especially when you have a broken heart, you can't trust yourself, right? And I was Ooh. like, oh, we didn't get to that one. We'll get back. Oh, guy, come back to us. Yeah, and we got to get him next time. How yeah. hope can actually not be uh, good for you, right? Which is pretty counterintuitive. But what, we're not gonna we're not gonna kind of uh, steal our future thunder with the next episode of Guy. What um. Brian, what what did you find most revealing or when you're, you know, kind of wrapping up today, what do you think you'll be thinking about from our show? I mean, so much. Um, it? It's funny. One of the little things that um, my fiance does uh, every day is the the past self, future self thing where she'll be oh. like, uh, oh, past Sarah was good to future Sarah. You know, whenever Aww. she does something for herself, like uh, 
Mm-hmm. And and I've always thought that was funny, like having that relationship with yourself. But then for him to actually like put it on paper and be like, no, that's actually like super healthy. I'm like, all right, I gotta well, start doing that. I gotta start talking to myself more. <laughs> uh-huh. Giving well, myself affirmations. Yeah, because here's the thing. When I think what you just said is like, uh, boom, in my brain, um, we talk to ourselves all the effing time. But it's like, but we're so not conscious of that self-talk right is so is that feels like the big oh i'm mean the to Rubicon. myself what <laughs> i'm mean you're, to myself you're when not I talk rude, to myself. i'm rude oh rude yeah i'm critical. like oh why the fuck did i do that god damn well you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, I'm, what like, I'm Brian? ruthless to myself yeah no <laughs> yes. i do the same andrea right but i i love that i feel like it it just brings so much i mean he he talked about the the compassion and self-care but it just to me it's fundamentally it brings so much consciousness into i don't know who talked about the monkey mind right you know no shade on monkeys but like how (laughs) how we just were so unconscious in our self-talk and so this idea of looking back and you know and then and and looking forward and it, it does feel like it's just a really wonderful way to treat ourselves better i love that jonas how about you any uh any uh big takeaways oh so many i think the self-awareness piece is a big one. So self-compassion, huge, hugely okay. important. Um, the idea of focusing on your journey, but also celebrating those milestones. I mean, I think we take it for granted, right? And instead of taking it for granted, maybe having some gratitude about the experience of life, the things yeah. you've done, your unique qualities, the things you've learned. Uh, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the tomorrow version of ourselves, as we've talked about, as Guy mentioned, the guy tomorrow. But think about that past version of yourself and celebrate that, embrace that, uh, and be respectful of it because that past person has put the work in and it's it's worthy of cultivating some degree of gratitude. That definitely resonated with me. I think the other thing that's really important, getting back to the broader theme of the dangers of comparison culture, yeah, which is enough. that... You know, it, it helps to, A, be a little more expansive, as we talked about, uh, you know, whether you're an artist or a professional or creative, wh- wherever you are in the world, a healer, um, yes, you want to compare up, but you also want to compare laterally as well and draw from different influences and inspirations. And even uh, those who are maybe not at your level because you know, you, you can learn from something from everyone. Well, it makes and, me want to compare, not to just interject a little bit, like to yeah. change the verb with notice rather than compare, right? Good. Because I feel like notice and curiosity, noticing and being curious, like it changes the tenor a lot. Like it's it's less about you, right? And we're all a little bit narcissistic and um, fragile, I guess, right? Versus being a little, that wiser version of ourselves. I could say, oh, let me notice that. The noticing piece is huge as well. I mean, but there's also this, you know, the, the 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 theme we've come back to is this idea of how do you liberate yourself from the danger or that that pull, that mm-hmm. that powerful pull of upward comparison. So the noticing, the awareness, the discernment in Buddhism, right? That non-attachment yeah. to it, all of that's really, really important. And it is a spiritual quest as much as, as it is a material quest as well, I would argue. So it's... Um, it's all, it all boils down to self-awareness and uh-huh. then kind of where you where you choose to either attend to or place value. And that's yeah. the fine line, I think, that we all walk. 
Well, what I uh, what I want to say is I've got this really cool hashtag, Jonas. I think you know a little something about it. Phoebe, F-Y-B-Y, free yourself, be yourself, right? It's something that we're really excited about here at Your Tango and here at Open Relationships. Just being so aware of how common and, and pervasive and even, as Guy said, systemic um, comparison culture is. Right. And so this idea of taking that back and being mindful about how we we can free ourselves by by being ourselves, um, it, it's a big lift. Right. We and gosh, we were in a discussion um, internally and someone said, you know, if you just said to somebody, quit comparing, that would be like a lot of toxic positivity. And I totally agree. Right. It's like you can't. I mean, you can just quit comparing but it just it does feel like and I don't want to sound too woo woo but it does feel like it really is a sacred practice of firstly becoming more self-aware right and then going oh I know what I'm doing I can do something differently now in fact um one of my dear friends Courtney when uh she and I were skiing together last spring and somehow something came up and she goes you know that's for me and it was something that maybe she didn't have. And I, I don't even remember what the exact context was, but I love the takeaway. Rather than looking enviously and saying, oh, like I'm going to feel badly about myself. She like brought her best manifesting self to it. And she's like, oh, that's for me. And I found myself doing that when I kind of, when that little bit of insidious kind of comparing thing bubbles up, I'll go, oh, that's for me. And it's just like, it totally changes the energy, right? Rather than saying, I suck, I'm not enough. Right, which I do sometimes. I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I, I do that from time to time. Um, but I love the idea of, oh, that's for me as an antidote to, gosh, um, you know, I, I suck and I'm not enough and everybody's doing better than yeah. I am. Yeah, no, it's funny, because um, as a uh, photographer, like I'll have other photographer friends and stuff, um, and uh, I tell this to my friend Hillary a lot, like, I'll be like, hey, I'm gonna say this, and I mean this as a compliment, but mm -hmm. like, I'm jealous. Oh. <laughs> and it'll Aww. be like like I'm jealous because you crushed it you know what I mean yeah. it's like like Aww, the, so the, cool. the being honest you know about it um where it's like I'm not gonna lie to you like I'm jealous like a, mm -hmm. that's a really cool thing um but it, like like kind of being more open about it and using it I don't know framing it that way it, it's very much um I don't know healthier you know mm -hmm. like we're reveling in your success together you know that's so cool I feel like what's so embedded in that is some vulnerability there Right. I mean, it's different to say, gosh, you crushed it and good job. But in a way that just says, "Ooh, you know, there's a little something going on with me. And to have the courage to share that is amazing. I love that. Good job. Brian. Oh, yeah. That's what I say. Like as an artist, like that's the best mm -hmm. compliment an artist can give another artist. Well, yeah. is like, I'm jealous. I didn't make that. You know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, that was good. That was good. And it made me feel jealous. So good mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> it's motivational. Yeah. Yeah. And and the nice thing is that you have that, well, the, here we go back to friendship, relationships, mm -hmm. a little rivalry, you know, raising mm -hmm. the stakes, raising the yeah. bar for one another is not a bad thing. It pushes you to bring out the best in yourself, right? And to explore and develop and so forth. That, that's really commendable. Yeah. I, I don't say the jealous part. I say, you inspire me. Mm -hmm. If I watch oh. a film that moves me, you know, that a friend has done a short, actually I was telling my friend Matt this earlier this week. He sent a short. Now the writers are on strike right now. So he's biding his time. He's also reflecting on his body of work. He shared uh, the short that he did. Uh, that's lovely and funny and tragic and so forth. And I just said, man, 
You inspire me. Thank you for sending that to me. It's amazing. Aww. Oh, that's so cool. Amen. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up on that uh, positive note of inspiration. Um, you both inspire me, Brian and Jonas. Aww. Thank you, thank you for being my partners in crime here. Um, and so that's uh, that's a wrap, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to yet another amazing episode of Open Relationships. We've got a ton of great shows coming up, so please, wherever you get your podcasts on iHeart, on uh, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, uh, subscribe, follow us. Uh, Brian, I always forget, what else am I supposed to say? No, I mean, that's uh, that's the main thing. Definitely, uh, if you enjoy it, or if you have any um, recommendations, people you wanna get on the show, or if you want us to talk about something, please feel free to email us at openrelationships at yourtango.com. And the very easy way to find this podcast is right on our channel. There's a tab for podcast and you can just find the open relationship podcast right there. So uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. Stay open. Stay open.